You are listening to March Mad Men, the podcast that aims to answer the question, what is the greatest horror film of all time? Set up like a macabre imitation of the NCAA basketball tournament, we have 32 films going up against each other in a series of grudge matches to determine which one will reign supreme in every subgenre of horror. Right now, we are dealing with haunted house films. And tonight, we've got grotesque cows, delicious light bulbs, going up against frontal lobotomies, bottles in front of me, and nyctophobic mullet rockers. It's something for everybody, folks. Gather the kids, gather the grandparents. Let's talk about Session 9 and Oculus. I'm John Evans, and I'm joined by my amazing co-hosts, Vikram Wheat, the amazing horror screenwriter of much repute, and television producer Rich Eckersley, who is a proud Emmy nominee and the man around uh, the reality TV genre and beyond. Gentlemen, it's always exciting to get to talk horror movies with you two. How are you tonight, Rich? I'm doing great. I I, I want to let everyone down real easy. Uh, uh, the Emmys were this past weekend. Uh, when the, regardless of when you're hearing this, it, it, that's what happened for us. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I did not win. So we're just going to have to live with that fact moving forward. Uh, as as podcasts and as audience. I know. I don't know. I, I guess they don't listen to the pod. You probably should get out there and beat the drum a little harder, John. Jesus. My, I'm going to fire my uh, PR people, that's for sure. God damn it. I, I really thought that you know taking out that full-page ad in Variety would be enough, but apparently not. <laughs> the industry isn't what it used to be, John. But John, it was it was just a, a full page of Rich's face. You could have written something on it. You know, <laughs> I'm a busy man preparing my notes for this podcast. Like when I supposed to have three items to mention about each movies, and I only um, had two for um, Oculus, and so it was a really smooth read because I'm a consummate professional. But uh, that was Vic there chiming in. Vic, how are you, man? John, I'm doing great. I was briefly confused when you mentioned that one of our movies involved a grotesque cow. Uh, and I I just couldn't quite place what movie that was from. And then, of course, I, it clicked and I went, oh, yeah, no, that's a line of dialogue, not an actual mutated cow. Although now I really want to see that movie. And uh, I think we should try and work that in next season. I'm, I'm pretty sure the grotesque cow was Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Hey! <laughs> Cow! <laughs> oh, that was a nice, uh, nice callback there, Rich. There you go. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I figure if we do this long enough, we'll work our way around to uh, killer animals, and you got to work in those sheep somewhere. So I'm sure we could black, watch black sheep, folks. Mm-hmm. The New Zealand, the New Zealand horror comedy. That's a, that's an, an underseen classic right there. Yeah, yeah, I tried that one, and I could never make it through. That's because you have terrible taste in movies, Rich. Well, that's how I got here. Which brings us to Rich's (laughs) opinion of Session 9, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. Well, gentlemen, um, we've had a turbulent uh, recording so far. Lots of technical issues. I'm battling an infestation of ants over here at uh, at this Evans studio. Uh, You guys are dealing with various children and animals and... And your own challenges, uh, but uh, let's let's muddle through. Uh, let's chin up and keep a stiff upper lip, and and talk about haunted house movies, and you know, really just be good soldiers tonight. What do you think? It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Are we going to try and kill each other? Is that the idea? That was always the idea, Beck. Excellent. Well, it's one of the things that these two movies have in common. Are um, care- actually there's a ton of things that Session Nine and Oculus have in common, but one they're of both, them they're both haunted house movies. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So there's that. <laughs> I mean, both of these movies do kind of deal with an evil force coercing someone into killing everyone around them, people that they care about. So uh, that that is definitely not an unusual trope in the haunted house subgenre, is it? I wouldn't call it unusual. It's it's a sort of a sub sub genre. Um, 
you know, these are both pretty stellar, stellar examples of it, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a very disturbing sub-sub-genre. Um, and one that, yeah, the Haunted House movies, I mean, Amityville comes immediately to mind. Uh, I think it could be argued that The Conjuring, you know, toys with this, that just the idea of possession or, you know, some form of evil manipulation causing uh decent people to to do terrible things i think that's one of the major thematic uh concerns uh, of the haunted house movie wouldn't you agree absolutely uh, and i would also say that this is these are two early very independent efforts by sort of rising young uh genre filmmakers and I think that one of the things I'm really interested to talk about as we get into this is the trajectory that both of those directors have taken following these movies and and just sort of what role that plays, especially as we talk about the uh, the historical significance per, uh, perspective. They are wildly different approaches um, to this sub-subgenre by novice filmmakers. Uh, these are two people with very different visions of what horror should look like. Um, and I think it's interesting to try to get in and sort of parse out, not necessarily whether or not one has more value than another, but whether or not one is more effective than the other. It's a very subjective process, but yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting to, to look at these films and realize that they're actually more specifically about family patriarchs being seduced by evil and their weaknesses are exploited. They're manipulated into doing terrible things to please some supernatural ghostly force. And I can't believe I didn't think of this before, but essentially these are alternate takes on the central dynamic of a little movie called the shining. And one of the most valid criticisms of the shining is that the protagonists were the patriarch, at least, maybe he's not the protagonist of the movie, he was already crazy going in. And I don't think it can be argued that that's the case with either Session 9 or Oculus, as best we can tell. So those movies, um, you know, you can't levy that criticism against them. They they do that very well. That's true. Also, as a patriarch, I wish more evil was trying to seduce me. I feel a little rejected. Uh, I'm I'm here for the taking, folks. <laughs> <I am. laughs> Vic's like, come on, evil, make me an offer, man. I mean, just <laughs> maybe evil feels like you're coming on a little strong. Maybe you seem desperate. <laughs> it could be it could be what I wear around the house these days. That might that might be turning evil off. <laughs> Even evil has standards. <laughs> Jesus, man, put on some pants. <laughs> <laughs> Evil's no, like, ah, we don't have to offer that guy anything. <laughs> exactly. Say, say what you will about Jack Nicholson. He had clothes on. Classic. Anyways. Okay. Well, uh, I think traditionally we start with the higher seed. So um, I guess that means we should talk about Session 9 first because uh, that was a one of the top contenders at the outset of our tournament. Is, is that cool, guys? You bet. Sure. All right, good, good. Historical significance is our first of three categories in this round. Of course, we are in the midst of the Evil Eight right now. We're leading up to the Frightful Four, the Fatal Four, the Ferocious Four, whatever you want to call it. We'll we'll nail that down later. But uh, at this point, historical significance is one of the topics of analysis for each movie. So uh, let's let's get that conversation going. I'll, I'll throw out a couple nuggets here, and then kick it back to you guys. Um, I, you know, and we'll just sort of discuss this. We won't, you know, give a book report about each category. I believe this is the first theatrically released movie shot in its digital video format. That's that's kind of interesting, and, and historically, it's also the best movie ever filmed at the Danvers Mental Hospital which is a legendary place with quite the lurid history, now long gone, of course. And in my view, this is the first great American independent horror movie of the century, and we've had a lot of them since 2000. And as Vic alluded to before, I think this is the breakout film of a director that I had very high hopes for, much the way uh, Oculus is Mike Flanagan's breakout film. 
And I think that Brad Anderson has had a certainly more than respectable Hollywood career. Maybe he hasn't quite lived up to my expectations after this movie. I mean, it's quite a fucking arrival. But uh, he certainly hasn't been pumping out the crap for 20 years either. Uh, the legacy might not be deep and wide-ranging, but I don't think he's ever tarnished it either. And it has grown. I'll also say that I, I put this on my list of the scariest horror movies for me personally. It, it's not overtly terrifying very much, maybe at, at a moment or two, but it's just really stuck with me. It just gets under my skin in a way that most movies don't. It creeps me out on a consistent and a lasting level. It, it hit me hard and it left a mark, shall we say. But maybe that's not even fair to bring up in this category because I can say it, it, there's no list of imitators I can point to here. Session 9 did not create a subgenre or even a sub-subgenre. Not sure how influential it really is, and by now it has had 20 years to do that if it was going to. I think it's certainly respected and appreciated, if not by Rich Eckersley. But <laughs> filmmakers are not aping its concept, its style, or its vibe. I think they should, personally. I've always found it tremendously inspiring in terms of its approach and its enigmatic antagonist. Maybe this is Blair Witch prior to Paranormal, where people just weren't yet trying to expand on this foundation or this groundwork. And then suddenly someone did, and the floodgates just opened, seemingly permanently, as with found footage films. But it's been twice that long as the gap between Blair Witch and Paranormal, and I don't see a paradigm shift here in Session 9, which is definitely something that Blair Witch Project represented at the time as, as a form of narrative. So, yes, the movie suddenly sparking a trend is unlikely. I genuinely believe uh, part of the reason that this movie may have connected with you so strongly is some of what I uncovered in my research is that this was very much Brad Anderson's reaction to Scream and Halloween H2O and I Know What You Did Last Summer and that brand of teen horror. And he really said... I wanted to make something that was the opposite of those things. That was very much his sentiment going into this was he wanted to make a horror film that was not about teenagers getting picked off one by one. Uh, that was a, a, an adult, very psychologically driven horror film and really went into it unsure how much of it was going to be supernatural uh, versus how much of it was going to be purely psychological. And, I mean, I think he succeeded in that. This is the anti-Halloween H2O, which, as I said, I think explains your passion for it. <laughs> yes, yes, that's um, definitely true. But just where it lands in the history of horror, I think, matters. Like, if you're going to talk about its historical significance... You know, this movie landed in the middle of a time when people weren't making horror movies like this. And so, yeah, it didn't, it probably didn't get the attention. I know it wasn't hugely successful financially. It was an answer to what was happening in the genre at the time. And I think, I mean, especially when we get to the, the sort of food for thought ideas, what you find is that there are still a lot of people talking about this movie analyzing it there are dozens of videos trying to explain the ending there are lots and lots of theories this movie compares i think most closely to the shining in that realm of everything left in the tournament that there are more people trying to pick apart the meaning there are more people bringing their own ideas onto this story uh, and teasing out different ideas. And I actually found it quite fascinating. So, again, in terms of, of historical significance as it applies to how we're, how did it impact the genre, how are people imitating it, I don't think it made a big splash there. But as it relates to the genre as a whole and as it remains uh, a topic of discussion among horror aficionados, it's, I think it's actually quite important. I think it's it's definitely a film that deserves to be this far in our contest. Well, that's music to my ears, but I think Rich might have some other thoughts. Well, look, I know you want me... <laughs> to play the heel? Uh, 
want me to. I know you want me to play the heel. I mean, look, I'll I'll, I'll go. I'll kind of go both ways throughout this entire review. I will say that in a sense, exploring the thoughts of others in a way much like The Shining, I actually think has added more to my enjoyment of the film than actually watching it. I can certainly appreciate a movie, you know, and I and I don't want to get too far from, away from the uh, histor- historical significance. But it's like I can certainly appreciate a movie that over the course of time inspires a lot of fan theories, a lot of speculation. You know, there is something to be said for being able to capture the public's imagination with just the right amount of, you know, vagaries and, and specifics that, that really just like give people enough room to, to fill in the, the gaps and, and run with their own imaginations. Uh, and I don't mean that at all facetiously. I think that that's, that's honestly like a special mix that that's hard to get right. I will say, I just want to point out a couple of things. This movie gets a lot of like, um, like Ballyhoo about being the first digital film. Um, but that doesn't really mean a whole lot. It was like the first film to be shot on a pretty antiquated format. Um, there was like HD 24 P you saw like a few films being released around this era, uh, notably like the dogma films, um, and like Lars von Trier's movies would, would follow this. Um, and a couple of like notable exceptions, like the, the anniversary party. And also like, in terms of like, uh, not to say that it's not a great movie of the, of the, the turn of the century, so to speak, but like in terms of 2001, when you're talking about indie horror, John, I mean, like a few other films that were released at the same time were The Devil's Backbone, The Others, Jeepers Creepers, a little movie called Dagon. So, you know, there were there were like some decent horror that was getting released around this time period. Um, and I think that this movie, while it may not be my personal cup of tea, like has has earned its ranks in terms of being considered one of the highlights of this era, certainly because it, it still has a life online and that is no small feat for a movie that's, that's this old. Um, so I, I can't refute that. I think it has a lot of special details and, and elements that, that make it unique, but in terms of historical significance, did it have an impact? Did it change the way that the horror movies made were made? Did suddenly the the way that that it was filmed on on digital unlock the potential of, of other independent filmmakers to bring stories like this to the screen? I can't say I've really seen evidence of it. Um, more so than you know, like Blair Witch did, which I believe came out prior to this. Yes, yeah. it, yes, it did. It came out in 1999. Rich, can you when you're going to talk shit about Session Nine? Can you do it in like Simon's voice? <laughs> I want to do it in Gary's voice. <laughs> Even better. I want to point out for the record, I said first great American independent horror movie. So Devil's Backbone is not in the conversation. And yeah. yes, I like this better than the others, or uh, which was an international co-production, or uh, Jeepers Creepers for that for that matter. So. Boom, Rich. <laughs> Hope you're ready for that. Well, you got me there. I can go on. Bones <laughs> came out that year. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, our next uh, category is food for thought. Uh, Rich, why don't you kick this one off? Like, kind of, since you've got the the mic in your hand. Food for thought. Jeez, I don't know. I'd probably rather not. But uh, sure, I'll give it. A, I'll give it a crack. Vic, you alluded to this, like the, the, the director has talked about the fact that that he set out to make a movie that was more about psychological disorders than a, than a horror film. And that it was through the post process that this gradually became a film that was that was geared more and more towards the, the supernatural. And, I, you know, I think it's it's interesting and, and illuminating to read about the fact that this is a movie that that evolved over the course of its production that wasn't necessarily a, a finely tuned storyline, but something that eventually found its natural place um, as part of its process. And so it leaves just enough gaps open that people can come up with a lot of theories. I mean, like just Google this movie and the first thing you get is, is fan theories, which obviously we brought up as being something that it, it shares in, along with The Shining 
is being a, a story that inspires a lot of uh, fans of the film to, to sort of elaborate. You know, there's there's a little stuff like that. I was certainly grabbed by the theory that that Gordon is actually a, a patient of the hospital or perhaps a, a, a doctor or a, a former occupant of the hospital who doesn't remember it, but in fact has returned. And so the, the voice of Simon is not a entity trying to enter his head, but is actually a memory. I mean, that's a pretty fascinating theory. And while you could probably poke holes in it, there's enough room left open for interpretation that you can also run with it. And that, that's a pretty beautiful thing. And, you know, the characters themselves have to be compelling enough to, to get people to, to run with those theories. So does this movie have food for thought? I mean, certainly. This is evidence of it. Even I was drawn into wanting to go back and, and rewatch it to see if some of these theories held up. And that's not just because the theories themselves were good, but because the movie left enough intriguing questions open to go back and explore. So, I mean, sure, I I like thinking about this movie, like I said, more than I enjoy watching it. I think that's true, but it does, especially in doing research for this, you have the sense that The Shining was very deliberate that Kubrick really had a vision of what he wanted to do and he executed it to the point that he drove poor uh, uh, Wendy Torrance insane. And here it seems like sort of an accident and that, that does sort of color it a little bit. And it's when I read that, I feel like you can sort of feel that, that it's not that it's, it's not that, they have deliberately left out things to lead you to certain conclusions so much as these things fell out of it and now you have to – you're sort of left to put it together. I mean what I always say – at least I often say this about a movie like The Shining or Donnie Darko is that even if I don't understand it, I know that there's a meaning behind it. I know that the, the people who made it understand it in a way that makes reaching for meaning uh, a worthwhile experience. And I'm not sure that that's the case with this movie. Hmm. Wow. That's a really surprising thing for you to say, Vic, and, 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 and quite damning. I mean, look, I, I don't think that this is like a movie that has this extraordinarily convoluted secret mythology that is only coming out in these incredibly cryptic clues that... Stephen Abaddon, I believe is the writer, and Brad Anderson are hoping that we will unpack if we, you know, get out our magic decoder ring and take enough drugs or something. Um, but it, but but in no way do I feel like this movie is something that doesn't have anything specific on its mind and they're just, you know, trying to be scary and throwing shit against the wall and sort of figuring it out on the fly. And, and I mean that personally in a, in a thematic sense, but just kind of what, what's happening with, with Gordon and the idea of, is it that he doesn't, he's not the kind of guy or he just simply isn't ready to take on the burden of having a, a baby at a time where his business is, is falling apart. Like prior to anything happening with the asylum or, Simon or anything like his life is at such a, a a point of incredible burden, personal burden and responsibility and stress. Some of the things that I found Googling this stuff and, you know, it was just the idea of, of toxic masculinity being explored here and all of the downsides and liabilities of male ego and the id and frailties and weaknesses and, uh, regrettable things about about male psychology come out at some point in in this film, a film that is absent a female character beyond you know the very marginal presence of Gordon's wife in in the literal background. I understand what you're saying, but I I don't think of this movie as something where they just like wait to see what what people make of it later i think there's a ton of intentionality it just might not be in the sort of gimmicky mythology kind of a way but at the same time even as i say that 
I realize that I'm just not that interested in, in one of the games that the movie is playing, which is as a first time viewer, you're, you really are wondering, you know, is it uh, the David Caruso character who's killing people? Like what's going on? It, it does play a lot of, there's a lot of sleight of hand with uh, almost a whodunit aspect of the movie that I don't, you know, obviously having seen the movie, I'm not that interested in. And, and all, I'm also not that interested in the idea that all of this is, you know, Gordon is a patient or something. I, I actually find that sort of ludicrous uh, and it's beside the point because this is this movie and we'll get into this as we go on, but it's not about that kind of stunt or gimmick. And what I'm really interested in, what I'm fascinated by among other things in the movie is, is Simon. And I think that's tremendously mysterious but there's some there's a there there. It's not empty, and I'll get into that as we go. But I, I do not think that that Simon is just a a cipher, a, an empty symbol for us to bring our own meaning to. I think there is meaning to it. Well, and I think, and I and I mean this in like support of of your point, uh, and in even despite of myself in defense of the movie, in lieu of like you know, Kubrick's like numerology and, and pictures of birds on the wall. This is a very primal film. Like the, the themes are very primal and that's, and that's also true of the shining. It just approaches it from a different methodology. This movie is literally uh, animalistic. I mean, they, they go out of their way to make that very clear to you with yeah. the editing and, and direction that this is about really base instincts and this is about how an, an, an invasive mentality, in this case, you know, meaning like Simon, you know, could worm its way into your into your psyche um, because perhaps it, it was always there. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I take your I take your point, Vic, that it's definitely a very different approach to it. But I think that it seems to work on the idea that this is essentially relatable to almost anyone. Well, I love the. The details that I uncovered as I was doing the research, and some of this we've talked about before, but stuff like Gordon tries to take the lead when the security guard is showing them around at the beginning as if he already knows the layout of the tunnels, which I found sort of interesting. Uh, I I hate that. Sorry. No, I mean, I just hate this whole sort of theory or whatever. I, I, I had to, I had to, I just, I had a, a reaction. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, well, so here's the thing. Because right? that doesn't make any fucking sense at all. <laughs> I, but this is, but this is what we're talking about, John, right? I know. Is if Kubrick did that, you'd be like, oh shit, what does that mean? But because the way that Brad Anderson seems to have approached this movie, it might not mean anything at all. And so it, I agree that you, what you have is a bunch of people on the internet trying to breathe meaning into things like that. But uh, it just – like another- really quick, let me just point out that it invalidates all of his personal relationships with these guys that he's been working with for years. It invalidates the whole idea of his wife and daughter. Like it invalidates the whole idea that this could be someone like you or I who simply are broken down – by their, their their responsibilities of normal life, and it's saying no, he was always crazy. It's the last thing I even want to indulge as a theory, personally. Well, sure, but but are we are we evaluating the quality of the theories, or are we evaluating the quality of the movie to conjure up such theories? I hate the idea that that would be a more attractive interpretation of this movie because if you gravitate towards that interpretation of the movie, I think that you're missing the best. More obviously better interpretations of this movie that have more to say about humanity and our, our society and the nature of the evil that man does. I just like, I think that's a really unfortunate read. If someone, if they prefer that. I've done, I'm not disagreeing with that. I mean, I just think at what I liked is the mystery that is lent to the story by some of these details but again with the caveat that like that some of those details seem to have not been exactly deliberate or are not actually pointing at anything you know any more than the the poster in the fucking shining as a minotaur right. but, uh, but to rich's point how does that 
affect the value of the movie for you one way or the other? I mean, it sounded very negative where you were going before. I just want to clarify that. I like that at this juncture, I'm still uncovering mysteries and details that people are using to feed these different theories and interpretations of the film. I like that the film has it. I think that it has those those things that Gordon calls Mike Princess at some point, uh, you know, which is a reference to some of Mary's um, alternate personalities and right. do the do the do the different do the different members of the crew begin to represent some of Mary's different personalities and again there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there, but I just feel like it lacks the intentionality that someone like Kubrick brings to a story that has this kind of ambiguity. And so that on the one hand, I like it. I think it makes the film better than it would be without it, uh, you know, without sort of more clearly defined rules and, you know, is Simon a ghost or a demon or, you know, there's no priest, there's no seance. There's none of those things that would really fill in the lines around this story and define it that way. It's one thing for the director to know what those lines look like when they're telling the story, and it's another thing for them to not know and therefore choose not to fill them in. Well, I I feel like you're saying two different things. One is this movie doesn't have the um, obsessive attention to detail and vision of a Stanley Kubrick movie, which I would say – that is correct, and neither do the other 99.9999999% of films in the world. So, okay. But at the same time, you're also kind of hinting at that you feel that, no, I'm not just saying that there's sort of a, a laziness or a incoherence or a lack of vision here that really it, the movie should have more focus or purpose or, or something. So – Maybe maybe put a finer point on it. Let me ask you this. Do you think Brad Anderson knows what happens in Session 9? Well, didn't we talk about with Rob Zombie? And I know that was an extreme, extreme example with Halloween 2 that he had literally no idea. And he was just like completely leaving it open. And I think we all accepted that as – being you know reasonable or acceptable for that movie and we still appreciated that movie um so okay like just keeping that in mind that i don't really really care one way or the other i i I think that there's the appropriate amount of artistic ambiguity or sense of tapping into something and i think vic wouldn't you say that as a screenwriter you're open to this as well but but that that like yeah, it, not, not everything has to be fully defined or understood. I, I think it's it's somewhere maybe on the fifty percent line. It's maybe closer to that than Kubrick being one hundred percent in terms of intentionality. And I would even argue because of the co- collision of visions that the Stephen King book had, and you know Kubrick calling Stephen King in the middle of the night and asking him if he believes in God or all of those things. I, I would even argue that Kubrick wasn't at 100% in terms of having it all figured out. But yes, I, th- I think this movie is is more on the side of t- closer to experimental, artistic. I, won't, I don't like saying nebulousness because that, I think, is that would be where you're too far and it's becoming a negative, and I, I just don't think it is. Rich, what do you think of all this? I mean, it's pro- sure, this movie is probably a little more fast and loose, but I mean, like, certainly... Kubrick, I mean, like every all the great like control freaks from Kubrick to David Fincher are are known for still sort of embracing the pursuit of the you know the happy accident. These many, 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 many takes that directors like this would do was all sort of seeking some kind of truth that would come out of the moment where people would stop thinking about the lines they were supposed to read or the marks they were supposed to hit. And they would just do something naturally that wasn't planned to begin with. Sure, like, did Kubrick have a completely different approach to it? Yes. Does it make it better or worse? Like, I don't know. I feel like that's a pretty difficult point to try to try, try to make. These are different approaches to ultimately reach the same means, which is to make an intriguing story. So I think to, like, extrapolate too much out of 
what we know out of Anderson's approach and then try to apply it to like our enjoyment of it, it to me seems like a kind of like faulty logic. Now it's something that, like if you're saying like you watch it and you just feel that the answers aren't there right. or you, you feel like you haven't been given, given enough of a substantive plot to maintain your interest. Like that's one thing, but to say like it, to say it based on what you know about the filmmaker, I, I feel like that's a, uh, kind of a losing argument that's kind of why i'm shocked we're even talking about this because i know when i'm being bullshitted and i know when filmmakers don't know what the fuck they're doing and they're just like making shit up as they go along and i I just that that never would have occurred to me with this movie food for thought is where session nine shines for me you know i love pondering simon what he is where he came from what he wants what he's capable of the fact that he's so mysterious, so off-screen. I mean, literally, we never see him. Not even symbolically. There's no representation of him at all. That only makes him more fascinating to me. This feels like an evil that might be real, working behind the scenes ever so subtly. He's a truly insidious antagonist, one that can never be proven or disproven. This kind of fits into my actual real-life worldview in a way that makes the character far, far more scary. I don't really believe in the supernatural, ghosts, demons, etc. Not really. But if this were how they would operate in the guise of mental illness or exploiting those made vulnerable by mental illness or extreme stress, drugs, trauma, all of the above, it would kind of explain why we don't have proof It explains why we have some of the fucked up and horrific things that people do to each other. And yeah, it would kind of let us off the hook to a degree, but put that aside for now. It's it's kind of easier for me to buy this kind of thing, and, and it makes Simon a villain that I can fear just a little bit in real life, or at least like right after watching this movie, even if it is a screenwriter's invention. I'm also fascinated with asylums and insanity and abandoned buildings and how people can snap and make irrevocable mistakes, how being lazy and myopic can get you killed. All of these things are front and center at one point or another in this movie from one character or another. And I love it. What does wake up mean? Like this, this whole theme of she needs to wake up. The uh, Mary Hobbs does. The doctor says that. They keep the, the the spirit version of David Caruso keeps telling uh, Gordon that he needs to wake up. Is it Simon or something else pushing that? That and I think it would be interesting to think of something else. But it, it makes sense that it, that's still kind of Simon in that the guilty conscience of the victim slash killer needs to be activated because Simon is so cruel that he wants his own tool to ultimately have to face what they've done, what he's made them do, quote unquote. He wants their better nature to be racked with the guilt and shame and horror of it. It's one last cruelty to impose that burden upon them. I don't know. I just, I love thinking about this stuff. I think the movie has a really rich array of insights, very dark, depressing insights, but dark and depressing insights about male psychology. I agree. Those are also the things that I really enjoy about this movie. But there there is a difference between looking at those questions and trying to find the answers to them and enjoying the the journey and the ideas that come out of looking for those answers. But I want to know that there is an answer. I don't have to find the answer. It doesn't have to be there. But I want to know that somebody somewhere knows the answer. And I don't think that's the case with this film. I don't think Brad Anderson knows the answer to any of the questions that we're pondering. And so, yes, the joy and the, and the, the philosophical interest comes from pondering the questions and those sorts of things. I want a sense from the filmmaker that those answers are there. And I think that's not, I think that's not just – that's something that's been confirmed for me in the process of researching this and going through the production and, and – and, listening to some of Anderson's commentary. Um, I think that's in the film. This is a film. This is a film that is deliberately vague because Anderson doesn't know the answers. Now, again, 
you can find really cool questions. And, and I think a lot of that stuff you're talking about is there in terms of toxic masculinity and the stuff that happens with the character development. I share your fascination and terror at asylums and insanity and the things that can come from that. I actually watched Ganjum Haunted Asylum, a Korean found footage movie that was not half bad. I enjoyed it. But I was like, oh shit, Haunted Asylum. Yes, let me let me sign up for that. I share a lot of that stuff. And I, I just want to be clear, like it's this is a really good movie and I'm not tearing it down. I'm just saying there's a and it's not even about Kubrick's exactitude or him doing 67 takes or about happy accidents. It's that, is Simon real? Brad Anderson can be vague about that in the film. He cannot give us the answer and let us search for it. But I need to know I, – I don't want to say I need to know. I want to know that he knows the answer. I want to know that there is an answer to the question, and I don't think there is – and I don't think he knows if there is. And I don't think he's particularly interested in whether or not there is. And I find that frustrating. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say to that at all. It, it almost feels like you're judging the movie based on the fact that you, you read some interviews and you, you didn't like his commentary after you, the fact. You weren't listening, John. It's in the movie. That, no, that I was tone, listening. That, that, tone, that tone, that vibe, it's not just I, in the I, interviews. I disagree. The interviews okay. The interviews confirm it, That's, but watching the film, I have this sense that there's a deliberate vagueness because they don't know the answers. Okay, I think that's an absurd, absurd criticism of the movie. I, I would give you, because I don't really care, and I have not, to be honest, been delving enough into whatever else he may have said or not said. And by the way, Vic, of all people, you're a fucking screenwriter. He's the director, all right? Like, there's also, how about the screenwriter? here so maybe maybe he has an idea but we don't know because the, the, the screenwriter was on the commentary too well okay <laughs> but nonetheless but nonetheless i disagree with you about the movie i i don't walk out of this movie and again all due respect to the people in the facebook groups that really want to just think about this as potentially and i'm being very condescending and i'm sorry but like who just want to see this as it, it was it's just like a portrait of mental illness or something i i do not watch this movie for one second not from the first time i've seen it to the eighth time or however tenth time how many times i've seen this movie i do not think it's ambiguous i think it's a supernatural movie i think this is just an extremely realistic and subtle evil force and i think there are, are and maybe you know if we deal with the movie again we can get super fucking granular but i can point out Many, many indications that this thing has an MO and it is doing it with multiple people in multiple situations. This is not just a random coincidence that crazy people happen to sort of quasi intersect around this hospital and, and then they just, you know, sort of do the same thing, but it's not because there's any supernatural force guiding their hand. I think that's just outrageous and ridiculous and absurd. And so I think there's no ambiguity, ambiguity about it at all. And, and if you want to just get down to, yeah, but what exactly is, is he a satanic demon or, you know, what, what, what exactly is this guy? I don't give a fuck. He's, he's a fucking evil force, a supernatural force, Simon. And, you know, we don't have to know whether you can exercise him or whether you need a magic charm or whatever and you can defeat him. That's not what I look for in a horror movie, and I don't care that the movie doesn't even fuck around with that shit. That's not my criticism, John. Okay. That's well, also not true, John. I feel like I've, I've, I've had this exact discussion with you about a dozen or so other movies on this podcast. Like, those are absolutely concerns of horror movies. What the hell are you talking about? I, I don't, I'm not talking about what other people think about a horror movies. I'm talking about what I think about horror movies. I don't need any of that shit. I think it weakens the movie. And, by the way, I think it's great that Oculus doesn't actually have them beat the mirror. Because I think that usually cheapens a horror film because it's so hard to earn that victory. And I, I don't think that messing around with any of that shit in this movie uh, would make it better. So I'm sorry, though, Vic. What? Tell me just really quickly. How am I completely missing your point? Because I honestly I do want to I want to get it. I'm not criticizing the movie for not providing more information. 
No, okay, okay, okay. okay. Let me, let me, real quick. No, I understand, Vic, that you are simply saying that you believe that the screenwriter and the director were just like, we have no idea if this is just a psychological horror movie or if the guy's, or if if Simon is real. Correct? That's what you're criticizing. Am Am I correct? That's a that's a, a bit of a, an oversimplification, but yes, I want to know that they have a vision. They know what they, when they know what's going on. That someone knows what's going on. Okay, and, you, and yeah, and, but, wait, but but wait, yes, wait, but wait, wait. you are saying that they they, they they confirmed to you via your reading interviews or something that they have no idea, right? Isn't that what we're talking about? Okay, but yes, but they confirmed it, but it was something that I already felt in the film due to details like Gordon trying to take the lead in the tunnels and not, oh. and, you know, when he shouldn't know where it is. They put those breadcrumbs in there, but they don't know what they mean. They just drop them in there, and it creates a sense of, of, of deliberate vagueness. Now, that can lead you to some really interesting places, and you can have some really interesting conversations. And I think there is – again, John, I'm not – it's not like I hate this movie. But I'm saying that even in a David Lynch film, which is filled with bizarre things and, and, and whatever else, there is a sense when you watch Mulholland Drive – that David Lynch is is doing these things deliberately. That that he is he is putting the story together in this way for a very certain specific reason. And I don't get that sense when I'm watching this movie. Not from the first time I watched it through the very last time I watched it. That doesn't mean that it's not good, and it doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of enjoyable things, or that it's extremely well executed, and that there are wonderful ideas and conversations to be had in parsing it out. But there's a difference. There's a difference between a Brad Anderson movie and a David Lynch movie and a David Fincher movie and a Stanley Kubrick movie and a Mike Flanagan movie. Wow. Uh, there's a that, reason. That was the next question. So Mike Flanagan, is he Oculus? It's all it's all there, huh? It's all no. figured out? In, <laughs> Sorry. In, no. In Oculus, I believe, I have the sense watching it that Mike Flanagan knows. He doesn't have to give it to me. It doesn't have to be in the movie, but he's not avoiding it because he doesn't know the answer. It's, it's, it's so the logic of it, Oculus is airtight. It's just he's not he's not sharing it with us. It's a, it's a question of intention. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the intention, I guess, like we'll we'll let it go. But the intentions that I care about are very clear, very mature, very powerful, and very disturbing. We will not let it go, John. <laughs> We're talking about this every podcast for the next year, and you might be right. a good movie. <laughs> we, can, we can continue to debate this as we get into Oculus. I'd argue that in, in Oculus, at least there's a sense of cohesion. Uh, for the record, Vic, I'm, on, I'm in your camp. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> This movie definitely feels like they were just kind of like throwing shit at the wall and see what stuck. And it turns oh. out a lot of shit stuck. Oh, God. Um, I hate that's, that. that. And that is no – that is, again, to, to get the right combination is no small feat. So they, they did it and my hat's off to them. But at the end of the day, like I I have a difficult time refuting your, your argument, um, Vic. And, and, and John, to your point, like I, I agree that all the, the, the themes that are that are strong and alive in this movie – are they are powerful but i think that the, this movie it, it's pretty hard to shake the haphazard feel like i you know i certainly haven't argued that against that from the beginning of this right right okay well fair enough but real quick i mean we got a one more category and i think we've we've talked about this enough for tonight but let's do rewatchability real quick and uh, I'll, I'll kick us off there i don't see watching this movie as a chore ever i can't really imagine feeling that way by the same token, it's not something I'd have on a loop at parties or consider my personal comfort food or even make a point of watching annually. I've said many times on this show that's not how I operate anyway. I'd almost always rather watch something new, but this movie is on the short to medium list of things I do look forward to re-experiencing every X number of years. And for me, it, it earns that compliment. As far as sharing it with people, I'm definitely a full-throated evangelist for this movie, if that's not obvious by now. <laughs> I don't uh, apologize for anything about Session 9. I will tout it to people who, who think 
who are in the mood for a thinking person's horror movie, and I won't skip it if I'm talking to a gorehound. I think it's gory enough, or at least viscerally disturbing enough, for that crowd too. But it's definitely a classy, arty horror movie. American indie horror, for sure, without the comedic element that a lot of these movies have. And I do think it opens up the normies as a potential audience. Uh, Maybe not Rich's mother-in-law. I don't know about that. You'll have to remind me of that. But generally speaking, I I think that this movie should have merit to practically everyone. That's my opinion. So there we go. Is Gorehound like an accepted term? Hell yes. Like like next to normies and Gorehounds? Well, Gorehounds goes back to the 80s, I think. I mean, like yeah. uh, Fangoria, Gorezone Magazine. Like, I think that's where I heard Gorehound for the first time. I like it. I'm not, I'm not objecting, John. I, I approve. Well, John, just to, just to answer your question, I just want to let you know that my, uh, my mother-in-law, uh, Teresa, thoroughly enjoyed Grave Encounters. Um, Fuck you. Know. you. <laughs> You love the insane asylum setting, and this movie has a pretty low rewatchability score for me. I rewatched it for for this particular screening, and just like I don't know, I didn't necessarily feel anything differently about it. I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I pretty much have already said everything I, I have to say about it. I enjoy the fact that it's open to interpretation but it's not a film that I particularly enjoy revisiting. It's just a little too slow, a little too vague. And it always seems to cut away just when things are getting interesting. Um, It's not a film that I particularly look forward to revisiting much like Grave Encounters. That did annoy me the first time I saw the movie. Rich, you you touched on something like when, why do I want to call him Josh Charles? That's not Josh Charles. (laughs) (laughs) The guy who... Lucas, Josh Lucas. Josh Lucas. Thank you. Thank you, Vic. Josh Lucas, the way, like, what happens to him, um, I had the exact same thought the first time I saw this movie, so I can I can wrap my head around that. Is he the one that gets approached at the car? No, no. Um, that's, like, uh, Brendan Sexton. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. No. Um, it's the guy who wants to steal all the coins and stuff, and he, yeah. he, you know, he's approached in a dark hallway, and we just immediately immediately cut away and we don't know what happened to him that i was like as a normal quote-unquote gore hound which i am i was like oh that was weak but uh, this is the kind of movie that when i understand the vision a la a coen brothers movie i don't mind it anymore <laughs> so all right Vic, rewatchability one of the things that really came out of diving into this film for this contest is I it scared me as much as the last time I watched it as it did the first time. I still find that closing scene to be absolutely terrifying. I sort of agree in the sense that it it's an it's a very effective film. It's not a fun film. Like I'm not going to watch I'm not going to watch this the way that I watched uh you know Below or The Fog or Jeepers Creepers 2 or something. But it does it does hold up to multiple viewings. And going through this research and, and seeing these crazy details that people are pulling out, I mean, I think, look, like, even though the shit in in the Room 237 documentary, some of that shit is crazy, you do have to admit, when you're done watching it, you want to watch The Shining again and see if that actually looks like a minotaur and see, you know, Daddy's wearing the space sweater and all those kind of details. And so it does hold up pretty well in the rewatchability category, I have to say. I actually did come out of it going, geez, I kind of want to watch this again, just to just to notice all that stuff. Apparently, uh, Gordon, at some point when they're in the cemetery, is sitting on Mary's gravestone. Yeah. But it's only identified by her number. And I, there's just that, you know, it's it's cool that there's a lot of that. There's a lot of details like that. So uh, I, I actually I give it a, a, a reasonably high rewatchability rating for a, a what is fundamentally a, a downer of a movie. But it is it is still really scary, and it, the, the scariness holds up. Well, we, we've already had this argument, and we're, you know I don't get the feeling, unfortunately, we're going to get to have it again. But I just want to point out that if I felt the way that you did or do about the movie, I don't think the ending would, would affect me that way. Because I'd be like, 
yeah, but they don't even know like what this is supposed to mean at the end. Like when we hear this amazing voiceover and, you know, he talks about living in the weak and the wounded, that would be almost meaningless because it could just be a crazy woman talking, you know, in the past and has actually no, no bearing on anything because this was all about Gordon you know, being an escaped prisoner from the asylum. I'm sorry. Like, I can't even make this point because it is somewhat ridiculous. But I, I just, I am questioning how that can have power to you if you feel like they don't know what it's supposed to mean or what it matters or, you know, they don't have any oomph behind this final beat if they don't really, if they haven't committed to what it means to the audience. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I do, but the, to me, the impact is just visceral. It's the quality of the audio and the the emotional sort of roller coaster that you've gotten on, and when you arrive there, and the the shots of the asylum, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it's look like the you know the shining could be gibberish uh, before and after, but by God, that scene of the of the twins in the hallway would still be fucking terrifying. Now, I don't think this movie's gibberish. Uh, and again, I, John, I, I do just feel like you're overstating my objection to this. It's, you know, it's subtle. It's tonal. It, it's hard to point to something specific. It's just a, a lack of intentionality. It's a, It mm-hmm. feels like a, like a deliberate vagueness that makes it feel incomplete to me in a way that some of the other films in this competition don't feel incomplete. That's fair. That's fair. I'll leave it here. And if you, you know, want to respond, great. If you don't, that's fine too. But there's a scene, a really critical scene, where a light in the records room leads Mike to pull down a box marked evidence. Like it's something, okay, maybe it's just dumb chance or whatever, but like something seems to be calling to him or pointing at this box with the Mary Hobbs tapes in it. And then. At that same moment, when he pulls this box down and opens it, Gordy cuts himself. We get an audio flashback to what happened with his family the evening before. Hank gets asbestos in his eyes at the same time. I just feel like the sequence is very clearly intentionally telling us that something is coming together here. Forces are colliding or aligning, and I think this somehow is Simon being unleashed in some way. I just I think that there, that scene shouldn't be com- overlooked, and I think it, it's telling us something. I'm really sorry that that maybe the filmmaker and the screenwriter haven't represented themselves well in the last you know 20 years, but I, I don't think that that scene is is just a, a you know a gimmick. I don't I don't think so. It's not John. It's not just a question of whether or not it's supernatural or purely psychological. I think that as as reading all the theories show there's a whole lot of options between point a and point b there's a lot of other theories and a lot of other interpretations so it's not it's not just that they don't commit to simon being supernatural or simon because i i agree with that interpretation i think simon is clearly a supernatural force in it but the other there are all the other details that lead people down these strange rabbit holes and i feel like those details exist because they weren't sure it is more broad than it's supernatural it's not supernatural i think this movie is open to a much wider variety of interpretations okay but that's a that's not necessarily bad and b maybe to its detriment for you know interpretations like yours i think the movie is somewhat slickly playing games with the audience throughout the whole way it is designed for one viewing in some ways and it's totally trying to keep you guessing and it's leading you there's red herrings and it's misdirecting you and it's leading you down you know blind alleys and stuff because it it's it's playing games with the audience and, and i think maybe maybe in some ways that's that's to its detriment for some people and i get that but all right i would love to keep talking about this movie but this was a good conversation and we've certainly you know done enough for one night and uh let's uh let's take a quick break and come back and talk, talk about oculus john i i love you as a person Thank you, Vic. I love you as a person. <laughs> That's, I think that was the most heated we've ever gotten. <laughs> I just was shocked. All right. <laughs> well, hey, but look, good. 
this yeah. this is the point we're at in the competition where we're mm-hmm. we're really you know I mean these are these are the conversations that that we should be having. Our sacred grotesque cows are are being uh, <laughs> threatened. <laughs> John, please make that the episode title. Okay, that'll do it for this episode, everyone. Tune in next time for the thrilling conclusion of this matchup. Until then, be really careful around boiling water. Adios.